Today's first speaker is Debbie Levitt. Um, she's a consultant and author uh, based in Sardinia in Italy. She is an American, um, so look out for the accent, it won't be Italian. Um, and she's going to talk about how we, um, this sort of practice of democratizing uh, research activities, um, why maybe we shouldn't do that, and how to deal with uh, the governance around design research activities. Um, within organisations that are actually trying to go down that path. Please join me in welcoming, if we can get her up on screen, Debbie Levitt. Hello, Debbie. Hey, can everyone see and hear me? We, we can and we can. Over to you. Super. Thank you so much. And thanks to Design Research Australia for including me today. Um, it is uh, way past my bedtime here in Italy, but I'm still really honored to be uh, involved. Uh, you will be able to download the slides from the website, I think, tomorrow or whenever they put them up. So please uh, download freely and with reckless abandon. Um, so welcome to the short version of Don't Democratize UX Research and Governance for Those Doing It. Um, this is just a handful of the slides I've written, so if you feel like I didn't cover something deep enough, I probably didn't, but I'll probably take up my whole 45 minutes, so my email is on the bottom of every slide, and if you'd like to contact me for help, advice, disagreement, please do. I will try to take questions at the end, but I might be out of time. Um, so, let's uh, jump in. For those who don't know me, hello, I'm Debbie Levitt. I've been a CX and UX strategist, researcher, designer, trainer for um, a zillion years, me and the dinosaurs. Um, I uh, My company is called Delta CX. We're a full-service CX and UX consultancy. We do projects, training, and consulting. We go into companies as a change agent and try to help them fix a lot of these things and elevate UX and the customer experience, uh, which is why clients like to call me Mary Poppins, because I fly in, fix everything I can, sing a few songs, and then fly away to where I'm needed next. A couple of quick notes for my presentation. I've been saying CX and UX interchangeably. I think when they are done well, they are interchangeable, and that UX is so much more than just digital screens. Um, and that's And also because customers and users, I don't want to die on the hill of who's a customer and who's a user. So you'll hear me say CX where you might be thinking UX. You might hear me say customers where you're thinking users. Just know that for time and things like that. I'm just kind of uh, using these terms more broadly. Let's see. So there are pro-democratization, uh, I'm sorry, those who are pro-democratization would say it solves bottlenecks and more CX and UX tasks will get done. And that's usually the main benefit, but does it outweigh potential risks and consequences? Why might democratizing uh, um, or anybody can do CX tasks be a poor approach. Well, let's start with how do we uh, define democratization because I found that people have different definitions. Originally, democratization meant breaking down silos and making sure that research artifacts, reports, and actionable suggestions were accessible and shared with others. Yes, please, let's do that. 
Somewhere along the way, democratization started meaning that research can or should be done by anybody and everybody. Training and oversight might be optional. Anybody can talk to customers. Anybody can do what UX researchers do. No, please. To me, democratization is not when we have designers and researchers working together on testing. Democratization is at least from my perspective, when people from outside the CX or UX department want to do CX and UX tasks, research studies, designs, etc., often without partnering with us or any oversight or standards. Democratization is a positively framed word chosen to make uh, people against it look strange. Who would be against a democracy? In a democracy, everybody can vote, but few govern. Domains like product management and engineering aren't democracies. Nobody votes. We collaborate where it makes sense, and very few govern. The gate is well-defined and closed. Gatekeeping helps these domains retain their power and specialty. CX and UX should be no different. When democratizing CX or UX comes up as a possibility and something someone wants to force on the department or do, there are many critical thinking questions we should be asking out loud. One, what job exists at our company where the quality of work, outputs, and outcomes don't really matter? If we care about the quality of CX work, then we want CX tasks done well and correctly by qualified professionals. Which other domains will also democratize their work? The cries for democratization are nearly always for CX or UX, but any domain could allow anybody and everybody to do their tasks. Will they? What is the ROI of having anybody or everybody do research or design work? Will we make decisions and create products and services based on the, the data? Sorry, we will make decisions based on the data that we have. If that data misleads us, we'll find these mistakes much later, probably when customers tell us we suck. We must monitor all of this and then estimate or calculate the ROI on having any research done versus the ROI of quality research. If we're struggling with a bottleneck, should we stop specialists' mission-critical work to try to teach newbies to do mission-critical work? Already overworked practitioners will be taken away from their work to train or oversee the teammates who are learning. How much time does the overworked CX or UX team spend reviewing, fixing, or reworking poor work? This is adding to our burden, not relieving it. How long will it take for someone to learn some or all of a specialized full-time job? Becoming proficient at CX work isn't like quick Excel pivot table training. Some CX professionals have master's degrees and PhDs in psychology, sociology, human factors, or HCD. We're assuming the happy outcome that everybody ends up great at CX work. If the person learning is doing poor work, do we keep that work, scrap it, ban that person from future CX work, allow them to continue doing those tasks? How much risk and waste are we willing to accept? Aren't experienced specialists better and more efficient at strategic and tactical CX work than a newbie guessing at CX work? 
CX efficiency decreases when lightly trained or untrained newbies are guessing at CX work. Efficiency decreases when specialists' already overbooked time is split between doing the work and running an improvised mini CX school. Did we ask UX leaders what they need so that we can best support them? We appear to know that we're short-staffed in CX or UX. Ask a CX manager, director, head, or VP what they would like to do about UX being spread too thin, overworked, and understaffed. Few are likely to declare, go grab some product managers and have them do our work as their first choice. They would want permission and budget to grow the department and relieve the bottleneck by hiring qualified professionals. Empower and support CX by asking leaders what they need and then giving them what they need. Let's take a look at the skills required to do our work well. Some people say CX or UX is just a skill or a few skills, and anybody can have those skills. When I ask them what those skills are, I typically hear things like talking to customers, making a customer journey map, putting sticky notes on a board, using Figma and laying out screens. And it's true, anybody can do those, but not everybody will do them well. If you don't do them well, you don't really have that skill or proficiency. We should have our eyes on the quality of the work being done and the outcomes it can produce. But sometimes we think it's more important to get the work done even if it's being done badly. This is a speed over quality approach. For example, customer journey maps can be good or bad, actionable or not actionable. There are good and bad conversations with customers. There are good and bad screens. You can use Figma well and be a poor CX or UX architect. So we must remember that the artifacts are not the skills. CX skills include studies of human behavior and cognitive psychology, problem finding and solving, critical thinking, deductive reasoning and logic, and putting your preferences and biases aside to design for user needs. For research, it's also planning the research, choosing the best methods, planning the correct questions and the tasks we want to observe, executing sessions with neutrality and a good interviewing style, observing and noticing things others miss, being a mini detective, analyzing the data, bringing it together to report on insights, pain points, and opportunities, and delivering strategic and actionable suggestions around pain points, opportunities, and direction. Authors and trainers from product management and agile are increasingly pushing the idea that product managers or engineers should be doing CX or UX research or design. Responding point for point, I wrote a lengthy article which you can Google called, Should Product Managers Do User Experience Research or Design? One common pro-democratization argument from books and training by product managers is that Product managers need CX skills or to do CX work to have empathy or have firsthand knowledge of customers. That's a slippery slope. If product managers must do the work themselves to have empathy or firsthand knowledge, will product managers demand to write code, run QA tests, build marketing campaigns? Otherwise, they don't have empathy or firsthand knowledge. 
Product managers work from secondhand knowledge constantly and without complaint. They get data and analytics they didn't run themselves. They get information from support teams without working in the call center. Nobody should threaten that if product managers don't do CX work, they won't have empathy. Everybody should be capable of customer centricity and at least sympathy without treading into other domains work territories. I'm not doing UX work shouldn't be an excuse used to explain why the product manager has no empathy. If we're worried about product managers having empathy, where's the empathy for their CX and UX coworkers who nearly never want product managers doing CX work? Product managers don't have to think like designers, whatever that means this week, to be better at solving customers' problems. Product managers must ensure that CX has been given the time, budget, and headcount for the research that will help us understand customers' problems. If that hasn't happened, our solutions are probably guesses whether or not we are thinking like a designer. You don't need CX skills or to do CX work to use critical thinking, challenge the status quo, keep asking questions, and focus on user needs. If PMs want to build empathy, why aren't they watching every live or pre-recorded research session CX conducts? They should make time for that as a top priority. And remember that the best vantage point for first-hand knowledge of customers is from the research observer's seat. Lower-skilled moderators and interviewers make many mistakes in their questions and interviewing style. They're sometimes more focused on what they're asking and trying to take notes than being in the moment with what the participant is saying or doing. Being an observer allows teammates to be entirely in the moment and focused on the details of participants' experiences. And the more people try to tie product management work to CX or UX research or design, the more the tech community might question the need for a product manager role. If our CX roles were allowed to be more strategic, as in CX and product strategy, and our engineers were truly self-managing teams, what would the PM's job be? I've seen the argument. If product managers are responsible for product strategy and direction, and research informs and guides those, then product managers must do research. This syllogism could easily be turned around. If CX researchers do research, and research informs and guides product strategy and direction, then CX researchers should be responsible for the product strategy and direction. Read enough social posts and articles and you'll eventually find every angle of every stance hailed as the one true way. Prominent UX voices, some experts and some not, who are pro-dilution tend to provide more of the following pro-democratization arguments. Anyone can cook. You don't have to be a professional chef to cook, so we can let anybody do UCD tasks. In addition to being a logical leap, it doesn't consider product and service quality and outcomes. Anyone can prepare food, but not everybody will prepare a tasty or healthy meal. Not every meal would pass a health inspection. Anyone can give you a haircut, but you might not be glad they did. Anyone can teach children, give medical advice, or design a parachute. 
customer satisfaction and loyalty, and our company's growth depend on us correctly strategizing goals and executing initiatives. This isn't analogous to cooking. If non-researchers want to try researching for personal projects, they are welcome to try home cooking research. But while we are a business that needs to make and save money, convert and retain customers, and grow the public's trust for us, we must maintain high standards for our work and its outcomes. Those against democratization are gatekeepers, elitists, want silos, create bottlenecks, and want to block others from having research insights. So much bullying and gaslighting. We already had the bottleneck. We made an informed decision to not allocate the budget or the headcount. We could have fixed the bottleneck and we didn't. Every domain in our company prefers to close the gate. If an engineer doesn't want to train marketers to write code, the engineer could be called a gatekeeper, but they're protecting and preserving their specialization. Nearly nobody would prefer to be siloed. Nearly everybody wants to share insights and customer intelligence, but we don't have to dilute CX's work to accomplish that. If you have a clear, relevant question, you can do research. We'll need higher standards than that. Clear and relevant questions are a starting point. What do we need to learn? But having these questions doesn't imply that research will be planned, executed, or interpreted well. Design and research are methods we can teach everybody. UX can then influence everybody's decisions. How does the understaffed bottleneck-causing domain have time to train or oversee others? Would our team rather that we spend time researching or coaching? Which work is more important? Did we relieve the bottlenecks or make it worse? Additionally, UX is often a misunderstood domain without a seat at the table or an equal voice. It's almost strange to hear a declaration that UX can influence teammates' decisions. If that were happening now, we would be so much more customer-centric than we are, and we wouldn't be laid off so easily because leaders would need us as decision influencers and strategists. Quality over speed. A great model for examining and calculating the real costs of our guesses, mistakes, and customer periphery, what I like to call the opposite of customer centricity, is the cost of poor quality from Lean Six Sigma. Start with what the company spent internally on the project and all of the time it took people and teams to do the project. How about marketing costs and sales efforts? Did we write, write training on this stuff? What did it cost us to delay and fix things later? You can start to imagine all of the time and money spent internally on the project, plus external costs. You might need to work with someone from customer support to see what complaints, tickets, or issues they have about your project's features. Can we find numbers on customers who canceled or downgraded? Can we figure out the costs of MVPs, and especially failed MVPs? Environmental costs for physical objects is important. What's the environmental cost when everybody needs a replacement part or a dongle? 
Companies are sweeping the costs of poor quality under the rug. Document parts of projects that could create any of these wastes or costs. Add it to the risk register or risk documentation. Bring this up in retro because Agile's about constantly reflecting on how things went and then actively making improvements. To nudge our company toward customer centricity, we might need to do a little digging on past projects. We all know of at least one project at our company that was a small or large disaster. Time wasted, money spent, morale was awful, customers unhappy. What did that cost? Do we know or can we estimate it? We might have to mention that project here and there to remind people of why we need higher standards for what gets released to the public. And the ROI is on the screen. These are all of the costs of that. These are all the costs that we will save by doing a better job the first time. Next time. So tie customer centricity to research and business intelligence, customer intelligence, and risk mitigation. Business intelligence allows companies to create better strategies, goals, and initiatives. They'll have the right information to make better decisions. Risk identification and mitigation save us time, money, customer trust, and all of the costs of poor quality. I'm often asked how we can tie good or bad research to outcomes. During a project, there are a few things you can watch for. There's no overarching CX, UX, or project uh, or product strategy. Sure, someone has a to-do list of features, but what are we really doing and why? Did we challenge projects with bad or no strategy? Do we have success criteria? Do the criteria mention customer or user success or only business success? Do we have clear and reasonable KPIs that relate to the work we're doing? Are we measuring anything around solving customers' unmet needs well? Another symptom is having no customer-focused problem statements. We might have a statement about what the business hopes to achieve, but where is the customer? We should write problem statements based on evidence and knowledge, not guesses and assumptions. It's hard to make decisions without the right evidence, so we tend to fight over opinions. We aren't led by qualitative data and a clear strategy, so it's often, what does a PM or engineer like? When we pretend to have empathy, say it with me, no, this one, empathy, sorry. Uh, when, we, when we pretend to have empathy and start to wonder what the user would like, we don't really know. We're guessing and assuming, which is risky. When we have reliable and strong qualitative and quantitative data, our team understands customers and their needs, tasks, and perspectives. We're then more likely to align around how we balance that with the outcomes the business wants for itself. Symptoms that we're working for bad evidence are really clear after we release products and services to the public. By then, it'll cost us way more to fix problems we created. We might lose customers and not be able to get them back. Risks, waste, and the cost of poor quality will be high when we don't notice or care early about bad evidence as a root cause. Symptoms include high support utilization. Is there a wave of support tickets about your change or new feature? Then it's probably not going well. Perhaps if you add support costs to the project budget, someone will care when we push our problems off on the support team. 
Negative voice of the customer sentiments are symptoms that are hard to ignore. Angry tweets and social posts, poor ratings and reviews, and lower customer satisfaction or NPS scores clearly tell us we're getting something wrong. It's bad that we're figuring it out this late. It'll be worse if we don't act quickly or at all. Did those unhappy customers speak with their Australian or American dollar and downgrade or leave? Are we seeing lower retention or loyalty? We're not meeting customers' needs and they're tired of our guesses and the crumbs we thought would be good enough. An A-B test where B loses tells us that our new idea is worse than the one we have. We knew our existing product wasn't great and we were trying to fix or replace it. We must be working from bad evidence or no evidence if we got this far into a project and didn't know that B was worse than A. Another clear symptom is that we didn't meet our KPIs or OKRs that we set up as part of the project's strategy. We missed our goals and now we have to figure out why. Poor research, the wrong research, not enough research, working from outdated research, only using desk research. Any of these types of bad evidence are root causes for our disaster projects and poor customer and business outcomes. Now, some people think that these symptoms don't point at research as the root cause, but are indications that design or the designer were bad. But a good designer can only work from the knowledge we have, the strategy of the project, and the qualitative evidence from observations and interviews done by a skilled professional. We can't expect a designer to create the best designs because a survey said people like our idea. What you think is bad design might be bad design, but it might be a symptom of a real root cause. Smarter and more strategic teams care more about the quality of the research insights than the number of research insights or how fast someone got anything we could call data, especially data leading us astray. At the start of every project, bring out this quadrant. Get stakeholders and your whole cross-functional team together. You can do an ex exercise workshop meeting or have people fill this out asynchronously. What matters is that we collect unanswered questions related to this potential project. What are our guesses and assumptions? What do we think we know about users and their needs? Uh, what information is possibly outdated or incorrect? What does everybody on the cross-functional team wish they knew? What answers would help us make better decisions, prioritize better, or strategize better? What information would set us up for success? A lot of your project's risk is on this screen. The risk of moving forward with a project where we have so many unanswered questions, know so little, or we were going to work from guesses and assumptions. The risk of doing the wrong research, too little research, poor or flawed research, or research manipulated to hear what we wanted to hear. You need qualified research professionals who know how to choose the right methods, plan the studies, and then execute and analyze everything so that all of these questions can be answered.
Democratization is typically offered as the solution to our company not having enough qualified staff to do the work in a timely manner or at all. But think for a moment about a time when your team or company needed more engineers, product managers, or business analysts. Did anybody walk into the marketing department and ask if anybody wants to do some coding, product roadmaps, or business process improvements? Probably not. We got budget, we wrote job descriptions, and we looked for a skilled professional to do the job. We still do believe in specialists. We want engineers to do engineering work. Misunderstandings about CX and UX work and the skills required to do those tasks have led to people imagining that where a CX department lacks available specialists, any breathing human can do the work. If we have no standards for the quality of that work, then anybody can do the work. Anybody can code, anybody can create a product roadmap, and anybody can suggest business process improvements. But few people will do those things well. Few have education, talent, proficiency, and expertise in these areas. We might think that we want anybody and everybody to do CX research or design work, but if we care about the quality of that work, the outcomes it produces, and our desire to improve customer satisfaction and loyalty, then it matters who does the work and how they do it. You solve bottlenecks now by hiring people who are qualified to do the work. The same should be true for CX research and design. Pro-democratization views rarely, if ever, come with a how to successfully democratize guidebook, a set of standards, or a governance model. This leaves the impression that anybody can do any role's work and monitoring such an experiment is optional. Like any transformation, change, or experiment, governance, accountability, and monitoring uh, are required. So since this is the short version, uh, this is the short version, but if you download the PDF, I have the long version as an appendix. And this is my governance model, but I invite you to fill it in or adjust it based on whatever works best for your company and situation. Uh, the long version is in the slides. It's also in my new book. Um, so, you know, download the slides and take, check it out. So number one, Executive support and an enforcement mechanism are necessary components. We're making change. How will we make sure people stay on track? Root causes and problem statements. What problems are we solving? If the problem is not enough research is being done, have we tried hiring more researchers? Does adding untrained newbies fix or exacerbate the problem? Success criteria. How do we know that democratization is working for our teams? What are customer-centric KPIs that will tell us um, that others doing UX work leads to better customer and business outcomes? We got more research done. Isn't true success? Accountability for small or large failures. If there are no consequences for the people who drove democratization, and if it's failing, then there is no incentive to do better and no reason to reduce, change, or stop a failing program. Who will be in what kind of trouble if this experiment goes badly? Training. How are we making sure that non-CX roles are learning to do great CX work and not just the least UX work someone can imagine? Who's training them? 
Do we have time to train them? Are they expert trainers? Bloom's taxonomy reminds us that if people trying to do CX work don't have a basic understanding of concepts and can recognize different techniques when they're being used, they're unlikely to be able to produce high quality work. Priorities. Which work goes to our expert researchers and which goes to our beginners who are doing this work part time? Which is more important, learning CX work or doing the product management, marketing or engineering work they were hired to do? Process. A good research process includes planning, recruiting participants, executing the sessions, analyzing the data, synthesizing findings and arriving at actionable insights. Will non-researchers be required to execute a correct research process? If not, why not? Work and quality. Will non-researchers doing research tasks be required to meet ISO or other standards that we've documented? If not, why not? If we find that someone's work doesn't meet our quality standards, what do we do about that? Do we ban them from future research? Do we invest more time and money into trying to train them further? Do we include the bad research or deliver it to a client? Do we scrap the research and pretend it never happened? Costs of time and salaries. Calculate the time and salary a researcher spends training, overseeing, coaching, reviewing work, correcting work, etc. Calculate the time and salary a non-researcher spends learning and doing research. Did work have to be redone by someone with higher skill? That took time and salary. Costs of poor quality. Are we monitoring our projects using non-researchers for research? Have we checked if research quality set a later stage of the project up for mistakes or failure? For example, was usability testing highly flawed, invalid, or didn't deliver the information designers will need to improve their designs? Did something that research told us turn out to not be accurate? Did we release something to the public or deliver it to a client, but it's wholly or partially failing? What did that cost us in reputation, stock price, customer trust, customer support utilization, negative word of mouth, or customers downgrading or leaving? And the costs of attrition and worker dissatisfaction. Did anybody quit our company partially or wholly due to democratization? It would be a serious loss if that knowledge and capability walked out the door. If you open a CX or UX job, do your staff recommend their friends or do they absolutely not want their friends working there? This model isn't just for democratizing research. It's for any change or experiment you're conducting related to internal processes. Think critically and take action. Remember, your company already believes in research. Some of it is good and actionable data. Some of it is crappy and weird, but they do believe in research. They use surveys. They want somebody to talk to customers. They review analytics data and rely on dashboards. They want to hold focus groups. They want to review the voice of the customer. They read tweets, social posts, and rating and reviews. We dig into the data from customer support and call centers. We search for tickets um, by keywords, feature, and other data. They want mountains of market research. They might use that market research and predictions about possible consumer behavior to make decisions and strategies.
So it's not like your company doesn't understand that research, knowledge, and data are valuable. They're just stuck in a, we're probably good enough, loop of mediocrity, plus a fear that deeper research takes too much time and money. We'll need to show that working from great evidence and more reliable customer intelligence save time and money. They mitigate risk. They reduce waste. We'll want to show how they lead to cheaper adoption of customers, higher satisfaction, and improved and cheaper customer retention. Let's put our math hats on because the business's language is money. Let's speak it. Here's a sample cost-benefit analysis for democratizing. A year or two ago, I saw a job ad for a UX research coach asking for at least seven years of research experience and three years as a teacher or instructional designer. The job said they weren't going to do the research, just coach others. So let's imagine they're paid 130,000 American dollars. That's probably an average across all of America for a job like this per year. We can't be hiring this person to just train one person. So let's say this person coaches 20 people who are going to allocate 10% of their time to UX research because they want to do a little, but it's not their full-time job. If the people we are training make 95,000 per year, that's 190,000 of their salaries going to them learning and doing UX work. But 20 people at 10% utilization would be the same as hiring two people full-time. That's the alternative to this whole plan and program. We just hire two people who are 100% allocated to the UX research work that we need done versus hiring, hiring a coach, having 20 people trying to learn UX, attempting it a few hours a week, and being possibly years away from a decent skill level. And if the budget is $320,000, you might be able to get three full-time CX researchers. Let's also consider efficiency. Experienced specialists will be better at strategy and tactics than newbies guessing at the work. Experienced specialists will be better at every step of the research than someone just starting to learn about it now. And again, efficiency decreases when our work is being guessed at by lightly trained newbies. This can cause project delays. It could cause projects to head in the wrong direction because the data informing and driving us is flawed or wrong. It can be hard to calculate the exact cost of this, but hopefully someone can estimate what bad research or testing can cost our customer, uh, our company in wasted internal time, as well as burned customer trust and poor outcomes. But for our sample math, let's be conservative and say that over the course of a year, delays, mistakes, lost revenue, and having to fix products and features later, thanks to flawed research and testing, only costs this project $200,000 in a year. It's probably way more when you think about what an agile team of six, eight, ten engineers get paid for sprints of work, but we'll say 200000 to be conservative. That means that our democratization adventure costs 520000 in time and errors. Or we can spend 520000 on one lead, I'm sorry, 520000 total, on a lead researcher for 130,000, a senior for 110, and four juniors at 70 each. 
20 people trying to quickly learn and then part-time guess at specialized work, or six qualified full-time workers hitting the ground running and working efficiently, not making mistakes, not delaying other projects. For what it would cost you to have 20 people working on UX three or four hours a week each, you can have six full-time researchers. One of these is a clear winner. Maybe your company locked up headcount for now and there's money, but you can't hire. That's where you bring in freelancers or an agency. $520,000 gets you me and two of my assistants for most of a year. So there should be certainly less expensive freelancers and other people you can bring in if you're not allowed to hire full time. So looking at the costs, benefits, and possible consequences, training non-CX teammates doesn't make sense. This is what speaking the business's language looks like. It's down to money. Show them how we save money, save mistakes, and save having to fix things later when we hire the right people to do the work well the first time, which would also be more agile and lean. But if you're stuck democratizing or you want to give it a try, Use that governance model. CX and UX are often treated like anybody can do our work. And if this were true, we wouldn't bother with job descriptions, interviews, or standards. We wouldn't turn anybody down for a CX or UX job. And in fact, if product managers, engineers, business analysts, or marketers were great at CX work, we wouldn't even open jobs. We wouldn't need any specialized professionals if most people trying CX work were doing it really well. Your company probably puts CX and UX candidates through multiple interviews, reviews of past work, and possibly a challenge. That's to scrutinize how they do their work. So if this is how we check if someone is qualified to do CX and UX work, then we must check internal teammates and hold them to these same standards for knowledge, skill, and proficiency. We can't have standards in some roles and not for others. So should a BA, PM, PO, engineer, marketer, or anybody else do UX research or design? Would they qualify for a CX or UX job at our company? Our tasks shouldn't be given to anybody who wouldn't be good enough at them to qualify for a UX job here. Everybody doing CX tasks should be in the CX or UX department with a CX or UX manager. They should be held to our work standards and subject to work reviews. Let's make sure we're staffing up the CX department with people who plan to have a CX career. If we're spending time, money, or effort on training people on CX tasks, let's open up apprentice and junior jobs so that we're training people with at least some foundational knowledge and the right personality for our work. Why do we rush to give up our power and then complain that our workplace has such low CX maturity and we need to do more evangelism about our importance? You're giving teammates mixed messages. And which are the roles that our companies are surrendering their power and control? I don't see DevOps trying to give up control of their decisions in the hopes that other people will feel more included in DevOps. Democratizing CX or UX is probably a root cause of why we're seeing so many practitioners being laid off in the past year. Someone was just telling me in my community uh, yesterday or the day before that a certain Australian company last year had a researcher talking about uh, democratization at their company and now they just did a layoff that they admitted was a lot of researchers.
When you give a consistent message to teammates, leaders, and executives that anybody can do your job, they'll believe they don't really need you. When you teach them your work can be done by newbies guessing and that's good enough, they hear you. When you teach them that you're replaced by workshops, sticky notes, and pretending that innovations came from guessing about our customers, they hear you. Fake UX and democratization are things we do to ourselves or allow to be done to us. It's hurting us, and everybody at every level needs to say something. Say something to teammates. Push your UX leaders to act. We must stop being surprised that leadership hears the messages we clearly and consistently give about the value of design, problem finding, problem solving, and everything that our work is about. We must be more careful about the message we're sending. And on that note, thanks for coming. Uh, you can check out customercentricity.com for a little bit more about my company. My new book is called Customers Know You Suck. You can get it on uh, pretty much everything you can think of, including Audible, or it's available for available, available. It's past my bedtime for as little as a dollar on my website, cxcc.to slash cKYS. And if I can help, uh, email me. I'd love to help. So I'm going to unshare my screen, screen and stay on for qu questions. If I can unshare my screen it's over here. Thank you, everybody. Uh, thank you feel very free much. to ask questions. Feel free to disagree. Oh, thank you. I can hear that from here. Thank you, everybody. <laughs> Good night. It's midnight. Questions. Thank, thank you so much. I, I, I have a question, um, which is a, a lot of the push for democratization of research, but also design, um, but research in particular, seems to be predicated on the idea that bad research is better than no research. Like a, some research, no matter how good it is, is better than no research at all. I don't agree with that. <laughs> I don't agree with that um, myself, but do you, I, I, I think I know where you're going with it, yeah. <laughs> Would you like to comment on that? <laughs> yes, sure. Uh, plus interpretive dancing. Um, yeah, the problem with bad research is that it misleads us to think that we've done something good or of some value. If we have no research, then we can always run that quadrant exercise that I showed and get people putting their sticky notes up and, and saying, gosh, there's so many unanswered questions that I have. There's things I don't know. There's things I wish I knew. And we can say, cool, unanswered questions. Why don't we spin at least something up to answer that but if we've done bad research if we held that disastrous focus group or ran a survey that claims everybody loves our idea and it's absolutely a success i can tell you right now then we've got that false confidence and we're, we're headed towards arrogance so i would probably rather see no research and our and a better self-awareness of the unanswered questions we have than to be fooling ourselves with research theater Thanks very much, Debbie. I, I love the I, I love the special effects, by the way. Thank you. That's why right. I'm on uh, Delta CX on YouTube, and it's my my effect system. I love it. Please join me in thanking Debbie. Thank you.